Good morning, Andrea. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing uh, as good as I can be on a Tuesday morning. I've had my coffee, so I'm focused in. We didn't have coffee in the house yesterday, and so that made for a really just fabulous morning. But today we had coffee, and I'm caffeinated. Uh, so today on this little sermon talkback series, we have uh, a familiar face to many of you, Andrea Lingle. She is a writer, uh, a theologian, and also a member of Central and a good friend of mine. And so I'm really happy to have her on here today uh, because we were running out of program staff members that were willing to talk to me and she's always <laughs> willing to talk to me. And for that, I'm very thankful. <laughs> uh, cool. It's cool <laughs> as we come part of. Yeah. Remnant. Uh, Remnant. And it means that I, it assures me that someone at least watched uh, on Sunday because I still have this this crisis that you know, we're making it and I'm like, is anyone really watching? Uh, and, and Annie had to watch this week because she knew she was doing this with me. So uh, I'm very, very happy to have her here. Annie, do you want to give people a way to get in contact with you or a way they can see stuff that you write or anything like that before we get started? Sure. Um, uh, I, you can, I, I guess if you want, you can follow me on all the, um, the grown up social media, um, Twitter, Instagram, and um, Facebook. I am not incredibly entertaining or interactive on such things, but I am there. Um, my announcements go to um, andrealingle.com where you can look up stuff about my upcoming book. I have a new book coming out in August and that will be exciting. And most of my writing is tagged at missionalwisdom.com on my staff page. You can go there and look at a whole lot of essays if, if you have a lot of time and want to read a little <laughs> Yeah. And you curate the, our, uh, the Missional Wisdoms newsletter that comes out every week, Wisdom for the Way, which they can find uh, online too at missionalwisdom.com, correct? Yes. And coming up starting tomorrow, we're going to do a series that I'm very excited about called A Six Inch Pilgrimage because we can't go on pilgrimage this year as an organization. So um, everybody's going to be invited to get a six inch piece of string and uh, we're gonna go on a six inch pilgrimage, which will be fun. Oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah. So I'll be checking that out too. All right, so you've watched the, the sermon, you uh, laughed at the amount that I read, too much Wendell Berry that I read um, and that's okay. <laughs> I was like, is it, is it supposed to be funny? Probably not. Is it sad? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but that is where we've come to in our lives. Uh, but I've also have a lot more time to read right now. So who knows? Maybe it's a good thing. But the first question I had for, for you comes because uh, you are a writer. Um, and it was a, a statement Luke made at the beginning uh, of our talk or our little conversational sermon on Sunday which was, uh, he made the, the statement, we can learn more um, from the white space on the page or in the, in the Bible, there's, you know, black letters and red letters and a regular book, there's black letters and et cetera. But we can learn more from the negative space or the white space oftentimes in story. Um, I wanted to know, uh, do you agree with that? And how does that make you feel as someone that writes? Does that add more to your plate or, or does that liberate you in any way? Um, so for a, a couple of things come to mind, um, first of all, um, in my writing practice, writing the, 
I am usually writing because I enjoy writing and because what I'm doing, often my writing is very processy. I'm working something out. I'm um, confronting an idea or um, a doubt or um, trauma or joy or some something, some emotion that I'm uh, encountering and I'm working it out. So the words on the page um, are more done for me um, than for the reader because I know that as the reader encounters anything I write, they will be doing that from their own perspective, from their own um, experience. And I will never be able to anticipate or control anything that comes out of what people read. Um, and that kind of leads me to my second point. I don't know how many points I promised, but I don't know. We'll just keep you going. You can do as many as you want. <laughs> I have a, I have a very precise four points. Just kidding. <laughs> my second thing that comes to mind is mm. when I encounter scripture, especially stories in scripture, um, not so much the sort of how you should live your life passages, but the the more narrative passages. I one of my very favorite practices is called spirit or scriptural imagination. And where you put yourself in a setting like that and you allow that scene to sort of come up around you uh, much in the way, the same way that you all did in your um, description of that room and Thomas's interaction um, with the room. And I find a, it's my favorite practice is to write scriptural imagination. And, and usually it doesn't follow the scripture um, closely um people after they read them will often say i looked the story up that wasn't in there <laughs> I'm like yeah i, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but there's it is a way that we can and and luke does call that the negative space mm -hmm. um, i think that negative space is incredibly important um it is also beyond the control of the writer, even a gospel writer. Mm. So if you are, <laughs> if you are putting words out into the world, they are not, they're not within your control anymore. Yeah. And they become, mm, I don't want to get too like, woo-woo about it but i feel like they kind of live in the world and they create yeah. something uh beyond me and certainly certainly i mean my own writing is one thing but certainly scripture lives yeah. in the world and has for a very long time and the space that it creates negative or otherwise is incredibly important yeah no i and i was gonna finish your sentence when you were worried about getting too woo-woo and say, I think it becomes alive. So I'm right there with you. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that, um, and Luke made this point to finish uh, our conversation, um, you know, that maybe Jesus was there in the room all along in, in the community and uh, that, you know, the other people were making Jesus alive for Thomas. And sometimes though, I think we can make the scripture alive for other people when we see it uh, like lived out or read differently or experienced differently. And so, yeah, I totally agree with it being alive. And same with 
any other work, I, like I find, I always find it interesting. And I know you and I talk about this or how different people read different stories. Like you, you, we could read the same story and I could be like, this is a story about, you know, X. And you'd be like, I did not get that at all. And to me, I think that makes all these things even, all the more better. Like it would be really lame if the Bible only meant one thing and everyone had to agree with it meaning one thing. But the fact that it, it is means so much to so many different people kind of makes it alive. And I enjoy that. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, think, I think it's interesting when you move the analogy off of the page, um, when you're thinking about a piece of music, um, there's something that happens in a space when, I don't know if you remember this, but it used to be that people performed music in big rooms. No way. <laughs> gathered to watch them. It's weird. Um, but way back in way back, <laughs> way back in yeah. people gathered, um, there's an element of negative space that happens there, um, which I find really intriguing. Um, therefore, I will talk uh, weirdly with my hands. Um, uh, so the John Cage um, wrote this piece called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds of Silence where he walked out and sat down at a piano, opened the lid and sat there for four minutes and 33 seconds and then stood up and walked away. Um, and of course the audience was like, but what he was doing was he was demonstrating that the ambient sound in the room um, contributes to the music that is being created. So it is actually very difficult in our digital age to get a hold of this because we can so perfectly reproduce music. We can auto tune it. We can make it yeah. almost like impossible to recreate live in the same way we consume it 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a real unchartable essence to music that is done with a group of people. Yeah because of the negative space aspect. Something different happens when you bring it into a room full of people. Probably you have the same experience when you preach to a congregation rather than to a, a bunch of empty pews. Yeah. Because there's feedback that happens between people who are listening. And I would imagine, you know, I, I would imagine as uh, Jesus was encountering people, the exchange of the negative space exchange, not negative energy, but negative space exchange, mm -hmm. um, taught the disciples probably about as much as the parables, I would imagine. Well, yeah. we, we can't really interact with that space that he would have created around himself. But I would imagine that, um, the way he treated marginalized people, not, not even in the scenarios that, that hit the gospels, not just the recorded mm -hmm. stories, but like just his constant presence, the negative space, uh, if you will, um, spoke more about what he was and who he, he was mm -hmm. that we probably, than we understand really. Yeah. And I, I love that you said that. Cause that kind of brings me to my second question. And, 
we did exercise kind of that scriptural imagination, you know, like what was going on in that room. And um, we see Jesus uh, or we read about Jesus appearing to the disciples um, and saying, you know, peace be with you. And that being kind of an interesting way that he communicates with them. And I wonder what his body language was saying and et cetera. Uh, but he goes on and, and Lisa makes this point to, to say, you have the power of forgiveness now. Like the, he's talking about the, the power of forgiving sins, the power of forgiving one another. Um, and Lisa makes the point and kind of reads deeper into the text to say, you know, that's also the power to forgive yourself because these disciples have been hidden in a room. They've been nervous. They've been scared. They haven't been doing what Jesus commanded before um, he died. And she's saying, you know, that the posture that he appears with, she assumes, and we kind of assumed was um, a posture of someone who was just happy to be back with their friends and wanting to instill in them um, that peace and that forgiveness. Uh, I, I wonder, um, I really struggle with forgiving myself, especially during this time um, of, you know, am I, am I working enough? Am I engaging enough uh, with people? And I know that um, I don't want to speak for you, but I know you kind of share some of those sentiments. Um, how does this, uh, you know, peace be with you, does this give you any hope um, at all? Or is it just one more thing on the list? Like, I need to forgive myself during this time, <laughs> you know, uh, which is obviously not Jesus's intent, but with, without us, you know, being able to experience uh, his body language sometimes, um, is that hard? Or do we experience it through friends telling us, you know, it's okay to be gentle with yourself. Um, is that where we experience that, that negative space or, or that uh, experience that the disciples must have had? I don't know. That was a long question. Sorry. <laughs> um, I have a lot of, there's a lot of different layers that come up. The first is, um, I think it's very important um, right now for, for us to figure out what's happening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really important for people experiencing trauma mm -hmm. to understand that trauma is sometimes very mundane. So it doesn't feel like, um, it doesn't feel like it's hurting all the time, but we're in a sort of heightened state of anxiety. Um, and when that happens, we are, um, I read some interesting studies lately about how when someone's feeling, felt meaning in life decreases, their ability to trust their intuition also decreases. So, mm. And, and a lot of what, you know, a lot of what we're doing in the world when we're talking about faith and spirituality is done on a very intuitive level. So as our life gets, the meaning in our life kind of gets scattered, we kind of struggle to feel like we understand, you know, intuition becomes very difficult. Mm -hmm. So um, it is very helpful to hear words like um, peace just really truly mm -hmm. um, you need to allow time to come in and um, help uh, you know there's no reason to 
shove yourself forward. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting, which uh, is, a, I wrote this in my new book, is that um, Thomas put his fingers into scabbed over wounds. There were time, mm. there was time. There was time between the crucifixion and the time that oh. Thomas encountered Jesus as the, the risen Christ. And we are very unwilling to allow that time um, because it's very uncomfortable. We want people to get from something terrible just happened to um, making meaning of it. We don't like when things yeah. don't have meaning. Um, we, we are very uncomfortable with um, chaos and disorder and not like environmentally, obviously. Um, my kids are just fine with that. But we don't yeah. like it when things don't make sense. And we really don't like it when our own behavior doesn't make sense. When we are doing things mm -hmm. and we don't understand why we're doing them, um, it's very upsetting. Um, so that piece portion that uh, Lisa brought up, to me very much says, uh, it's okay to stay here in this moment that feels so very uncomfortable. And um, this is very helpful uh, if you are encountering somebody who's in the midst of grief or trauma. It's okay to live there. It's okay to stay mm -hmm. there. It's okay not to be um, looking for all the good things that are happening because of whatever terrible thing just happened yet. Um, uh, David Kessler, who was the Kessler of um, Kubler, Ross, and Kessler, who they did the stages of grief, mm -hmm. um, came out with a new book in November of 2019 called Finding Meaning. Oh. And uh, it talks about adding a sixth stage of grief onto Finding Meaning, or Finding Meaning as the sixth stage of grief. Mm -hmm. um, and I found myself reacting very strongly um, to that in a way um, because for, for some people and for some problems, what you, what you really need is for someone to release you from finding meaning in it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, creating a meaningful life is one thing, but being forced into meaning making of traumatic experience is, it, it, it's difficult. Um, mm -hmm. And so for everyone who is uncomfortable, stuck at home, or who is short of income, or who has just watched everything that they've just put together for the last however long disintegrate because we've just been what may feel like arbitrarily paused, um, mm -hmm. it's okay for that to hurt. It's okay for it to hurt mm -hmm. and not to make um, anything of it. And it's okay for that to actually be where you are within peace. Peace is not, peace like joy is not happiness. Yeah. Um, I also, there were other things, but they left, so. No, that was, I, that was really, really well said, especially I liked the, some people just need to be released from trying to find meaning. And I, you know, reading into that negative space, I think that that would have been really helpful for Jesus to say to the disciples, 
because th they would have been feeling that pressure, I assume, to like, we need to go out and do something about this or figure out why this happened or uh, just knowing kind of the busybody nature of them, you know, and so this Jesus coming and saying, you know, peace be with you and giving them that forgiveness, I think would release them from, ha you know, from having to do to to continue to search, you know, and release them from all of their, you know, not good enough feelings or uh, feelings of uh, inaction. Um, and I really do think that that is helpful for people to hear, especially right now, because we're all looking for, you know, why is this going on? Or is this, maybe I should use this as a time of, uh, you know, <laughs> renewal, or maybe I should, and, and instead it's like, it's okay for it not to mean anything. You know, it's okay for this to be difficult. Um, I don't know. I think I really, I really like that. And with that, this kind of brings me to the last question I had, which was Luke ended up with a passage from C.S. Lewis's uh, The Grand Miracle. I mean, Lewis in that passage is uh, urging us to, to move into um, the cosmic spring and summer, you know, to make that turn towards spring uh, when we see the crocus or at, you know, the crocus being the stand-in for um, the, the resurrection of Jesus and to, to see that and to move towards spring and summer and away from, as he says, you know, this, um, this like cosmic winter, this forever winter. Um, and that was, is a really powerful statement and a really beautiful statement. Um, and I really resonated with that, but how do we do, do that is really, uh, and because right now, um, it can be really hard to experience the resurrection, even though spring is going on and I can look out my window right now and see, you know, dogwoods and I can see, we have like a few poplar trees that are, you know, blooming and we have a black walnut tree that's blooming and all of these things. And that's really wonderful, but it can be really easy to still experience that kind of winter, uh, in our hearts where it's like, well, I'm not ready to, to, you know, move towards the budding spring and into the, the, I think Lewis says like the, the um, lofty pomps of summer, you know, I'm not ready to, to make that turn uh, yet. Um, and so what are some, I don't know, what are some ways that we can maybe orient ourselves towards spring? Uh, and, and what are some ways that we can just maybe keep our eyes on the budding newness of life, the new creation. Um, even if that means we're not ready to move forward yet, but just to keep our eyes on it, I guess. Um, I gave you the hard questions. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just want to organize this in, in a way that makes sense. Um, being a writer, I use the delete button a lot um, <laughs> and the copy and paste button. So yeah. Uh, when I do something uh, spontaneously, I want to make sure I put it in the right order. Um, the first thing is that the crocus, the crocus does not create spring. Mm -hmm. The crocus participates in spring. Spring mm -hmm. happens to the crocus. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that missional wisdom, uh, the, nonprofit foundation that well we both work for um teaches is that our the initial step into uh grace is to pay attention um and often 
when we often when we are trying to manufacture spring and um, when we're trying to walk through, you know, five steps to personal actualization or do these seven things and you'll have, you know, fulfillment and rock solid abs or something. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, We forget the crocuses because the crocuses uh, literally live underground. I mean, the energy, the energy source of the crocus just lives underground. And for a very short portion of the year, does really, does it sort of sprout? And for an incredibly short portion of the year, does it bloom? But it is a perennial reminder of grace because in, Mm. especially if we live in a place where there's a lot of snow, I mean, we don't, so. Um, it gets lost a little bit, but I can imagine that if you were living in um, a colorless landscape for three to four months, and then all of a sudden you were to see a little purple or a little golden face, mm-hmm. um, they poke through the snow even. So yeah. this paradoxical, un, you know, it's it's a it's a little flower that doesn't obey the the norms. It says, um, I'm going to try this before I should. Um, They bloom before daffodils. Daffodils bloom early, but crocuses try even earlier. And so it feels very inspiring. Um, But it's also true that they don't do it. They don't Mm. make spring. They just participate in spring. the other thing, um, Thomas has become one of my heroes because uh, he's kind of my spirit animal because he was willing to say no. Yeah, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, you know, and you know, he got kind of slapped with an unkind moniker because of it, um, except that um because of his unwillingness to accept what would have been an completely ridiculous and frankly the thing that everybody wanted right mm-hmm. when the hero comes back that's the way everybody wants the story to go um always they can go back and unsnap Thanos's fingers and everybody yeah. comes back that's supposed to come back except for I don't understand the timeline in in Avengers movies but that's fine that's a that's <laughs> a side tangent but you know the the hero is always allowed resurrection but often <laughs> uh, I was just reading Soren Kierkegaard's uh, Sickness Unto Death and he calls Lazarus, when, when he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he says, he is not dead, with, he is not uh, sick unto death. And Kierkegaard points out that even if Jesus didn't raise Lazarus in the body, he would not have been sick unto death. 
because death is not sickness unto death because it's not spiritual death. Um, I think what Thomas does is he refuses to see, he refuses to see Jesus's body being raised from the dead as proof of non-death. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'll, um, I'll untangle that, I promise. So, <laughs> you know, so he says, um, Jesus isn't dead. I mean, they, they all say Jesus isn't dead. He's been raised from the dead. Um, and I think what I would be saying if I were Thomas is, yes, but is what we were following dead. They crucified mm-hmm. what we were following. Um, the Jesus, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah was not supposed to die. Um, we devoted three years of our lives to following this man around and being uh, fishers of men, whatever that means, and finding meaning in mustard seeds and um, being willing to listen to all kinds of weird stories and being Socratic fools and saying, I don't understand these and being um, sort of the foil against which the whole world is understanding this movement and um, does, is that dead? Is that dead? And the question that he says, until I can, until I can sort of enter into the resurrection, I, I, I don't, I can't feel it. Mm-hmm. And that's a real hard thing being this far removed from the story because as much as you want to be able to experience the story and we, we really do a beautiful job of expanding Lent and Holy Week and um, we gather and we reinvest ourselves in the story and we try not to spoil the ending. The truth is like, we really don't have a corporal, uh, you know, an enfleshed and an incarnational experience of the death Mm -hmm. and resurrection of Christ. We just don't. Um, So for me, these, this pause, this um, space, the negative space that Thomas creates gives those of us who take a little longer to um, come to come to grips with what has happened. Um, it's just a little space to process. It's a yeah. little time to say, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I don't know exactly what this means. And if it all, if it's all true, what does, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. And I can feel Thomas just being like, um, feeling a tiny bit, he wasn't quite ready to forgive Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. I know that, I know that the disciples abandoned Jesus, but Thomas was forced to stand and watch God abandon God mm-hmm. and come to terms with the death of God it, that he yeah. was holding. You know, he held a certain conception of God and he had to watch that die. Mm-hmm. And he had to just tell everybody, hold on a minute. I'm not ready to just blast through to the next stage. And for that reason, I am in, 
I am, I love Thomas because he yeah. stands in for all of us who say, hold on a minute. I have to just let go of this thing that went before. Give me a second. Yeah, give me a second. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, is the patron saying, give me a second. Yeah. I, I always like uh, to point out, you know, we give Thomas the name doubter, but we don't give Peter the name denier. You know, we give Peter the name rock, even though he, what he did was, you know, pretty egregious because Jesus was still alive, <laughs> you know, or, Tom or John gives himself his own nickname, which is the beloved disciple, which I mean, if you have to give yourself your own nickname, you should do that. Uh, I, the beloved disciple is the move. And yeah. so uh, Thomas, though, in reality, I, and I tried to say this in our sermon, because I, I agree with you, is the stand in for a lot of us that are like, now let's just take a second. Like, I'm, I'm not ready to be fully, you know, on board with this yet. Um, but the nice thing is that Thomas is still willing to be there the next time Jesus appears. Um, and because a lot of times in life, and this is where I'm kind of finding my way towards spring, is to continue, like you said, to, to show up and pay attention to what's going on. Whether I'm ready to accept it or not is another thing but I'm going to keep looking for it until I'm on my own time, ready to accept it, you know? Uh, and Thomas is the patron saint for all of us that kind of feel that way. <laughs> that, that are, yeah. Please, I need time. Yeah. Well, and that would have well, felt like, I mean, it would have felt like a, from a, from an emotional standpoint, it would have felt like whiplash to be, mm -hmm you know, to be following around this guy, be part of a movement and that you, not only you're, uh, you know, you've left everything to follow, but your religious identity is kind of tied up in this. You've, you've actually made a stand. I mean, how often are we like yeah. always leave an asterisk, right? Like I believe yeah. that asterisk, like I always have a back door, like in yeah. that I say, I, my favorite word is perhaps. You know, perhaps. I, yeah, I 100% believe this, perhaps, maybe. Mm. <laughs> There's always a back door. And the disciples had had um, gone all in. They'd walked all the way into the situation. And they had trusted not only Jesus, but they had trusted God. And God, they had to stand there. And if the words of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels were anywhere close to being of um, something that a bystander could experience um, that would have been devastating. Mm -hmm. And I realized that my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me was a reference, a, a psalmic reference. So there is, um, and that psalm does take a turn, but the, the, the uttered words, the uttered experience from their rabbi was the absence of God. And mm -hmm. they had called him the son of God and he had professed to be the son of God and God abandons him. And how could Thomas not doubt that whatever it was that was living before the crucifixion 
how could that ever be resurrected? Because mm -hmm. in the face of that kind of death, not the, not the death of Jesus's body, but the abandonment of Jesus on the cross, the abandonment by God of Jesus on the cross would have, and is for me. I mean, I, I, I don't even have to put myself in that hypothetical situation. It is yeah. to me that the moment of abandonment on the cross has to be grappled with. It's yeah. as if um, we have to allow the absurdity of that moment. We have to allow the absurdity of a God that would ask a father to sacrifice a son um, in Abraham. Um, you can tell I've been reading Kierkegaard. It's just it's <laughs> in my head. Um, Comes out, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the pump is primed. Um, you know, if we don't, if we don't allow these things to be um, truly difficult, then we kind of castrate them in a way. Like we take mm -hmm. all of the, all of the power out of a situation when we say, you know, when we put our Easter egg hunt on Holy Saturday and we don't let it be the profound blank space that it really mm -hmm. needs to be. Yeah. And I, I think you're exactly right that the, we are exist in a space now where we try to dull the pain of most things. Um, or dull the and um, it it is very this year has not I, I've been able to experience that um, a space to grapple with you know God what's going on um, to a, a greater extent but it is still less than you know the experience of someone witnessing um, the embodiment of love and community to them the embodiment of of uh god incarnate to them die at the hands of god that is you know would have been something that it would take maybe more than three days <laughs> to process you know yeah. it would maybe take more than two thousand years to process the 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 pain of of that and and the turning of that pain into love is, you know, such a hard turn in some ways to make. And uh, th that is, I think what Lewis was trying to get at with like the turning towards spring and that in the face of pain and in the face of, you know, winter, the crocus still defiantly pokes its head through the snow, you know, and, and, and comes to life. Uh, I don't know if, if, I'm ready to make that turn, but I'm trying, you know? Yeah. And that's, well, I think it, that's the beauty of the season. Yeah. And what's, I, I think Lewis's use of a cyclical um, metaphor is helpful because um, we, do, we are not asked to go permanently into the summer. Um, we are asked to, participate in summer as it comes um, yeah. and knowing that on the other side of summer is winter and 
certainly Thomas would not have held, had this, this benefit of knowing that on the other side of Easter is Advent. And, um, you know, Advent is placed in the darkest moment. And we focus on, we focus on the coming of a very small light in the darkest part of the year. And then in Easter, at least in our hemisphere, um, Easter comes with the growing of light, mm-hmm. growing light, the expansion of all things. And it's interesting that it's not at the, the zenith of the year from mm-hmm. a light standpoint. It's not at the solstice of um, the year. It, and if oh, I think aesthetically, I might have done that just to be like, oh, cute. Look, we have look. that. <laughs> but it's, it's, it, it's at the moment when life is becoming because what's so important and I think so hard to live is that we're not trying to get to a place. We're not trying to get to a destination. We're not trying to get to uh, enlightenment or transcendence or nirvana. We are, we are getting, you know, what I've learned through uh, pilgrimage is that, um, where you're going is not as important as going, the process of going. Um, and Jesus, Jesus' passion story is placed within our physical year at a time when you'd have to be not paying attention to not notice the becoming of the world. Mm-hmm. The world is becoming. Um, Uh, so I, I do appreciate that we're not asked to be forever. It's not a static ask. It's mm-hmm. a cyclical ask. And we can engage for just as long as we can. And then we're allowed to, um, whatever the opposite of emerge is, demerge? <laughs> Dismerge? <laughs> Dismerge? I don't know. I'm going to unmerge. Retreat? Oh. Retract? Um. I did want, I thought this was interesting uh, with reference to Thomas. Can I insert a quote? Please. All right. Uh, so I was thinking about this in, in terms of Thomas having the courage to doubt in the face of all of his friends and in the face of his teacher. Um, because I, I think it would have taken an incredible amount of courage to say, I don't believe, even though obviously what he was being asked to believe was, was impossible and ridiculous. It was also his entire social framework was saying yes. And he uh, maybe with a very small voice said no. Um, Mm -hmm. But in doing in that tiny, no, he claimed the process. He said, I'm going to engage in a process of doubt and of inquiry. And um, sometimes if we don't do that, sometimes if we allow um, ourselves to be numbed to whatever's happening around us, sometimes we have to turn off. I I understand that. But if you never emerge, if you never Mm -hmm. turn off Netflix, if you never put down the memes, if you never, you know, walk into the discomfort, if you're always looking for the silver lining, if, you know, if, 
everything is always going to work together for the good of whatever. And there's meaning in everything. If you never face the meaninglessness of trauma of crucifixion, you can abandon the self. You can abandon mm -hmm. who you are. Um, and this is from Kierkegaard, um, obviously, because that's what I'm a one-trick pony today. The greatest danger, <laughs> that of losing one's own self, may pass off as quietly as if it were nothing. Every other loss, that of an arm, a leg, $5, or a wife, is sure to be noticed. So, I mean, I, I love that because it's a thing of vigilance to keep mm -hmm. the spirit of Thomas going. Now, it, it, you can be a real pain in the butt if that's the only place you live, if you're just Socrates mm -hmm. and questioning everything. But if you don't allow Thomas to inhabit your imagination for a while, then we can we can lose ourselves and not even notice. Mm -hmm. Wow. I really love that. And I think that that is uh, a profound way to end, especially because we are being called to pay attention to ourselves during this time. And it is so easy to, to lose ourselves in the, well, what am I doing today? What am I doing tomorrow? What am I doing the next day? My identity is gone because it was tied up in going to work or going to school or going to church. Um, and to take on that, that spirituality of Thomas, to pay attention to that, that questioning, that prodding, that existing in the, the tense space, the space in between um, is a hard one, but I think you're exactly right that it's one that, um, especially during this time, right after Easter, um, no matter the year, and also specifically during this time, it's a time to reevaluate what Easter meant to us then, what it will mean to us in the future, and, and kind of what it, what it means to exist in this difficult space in Jesus' risen. I have yet to experience that resurrection myself. Um, and so uh, with that, I am very thankful we got to talk. You too. Um, uh, I always like talking to you. Hopefully people enjoyed this conversation. I know I did. So that's all that matters today for me. I'm just kidding. Sorry. And uh, I, I just wanted to say thanks uh, for all you do. And also just thanks for taking time to talk to me this morning. Um, I'm sure we'll talk again, just probably not on a recording. Okay. Talk to you soon, Annie. Bye.